Morning, how's everybody doing today? Good. Hey, that was a pretty decent response. Normally, it's uh, about one person. It's uh, good to see you today. Uh, as I said earlier, my name is Joe. I'm one of the pastors here. Really glad that you're here this morning. Um, we are in a series called Transformed, and we've been looking at different areas of our life where we believe God wants to transform us. And so the first week of the series, we discussed that the deepest place of transformation that needs to take place in our hearts is in our spiritual lives. And then last week, we talked about um, dealing with stress, and we called it how to defeat, uh, how to defeat stress. Uh, many of you were away last week. I know it was a holiday, so if you missed that message, you could always pick it up on the podcast. And through our small groups uh, this, fo- this past week, we talked about how to take care and manage our bodies. And this morning, we're going to talk about how to experience transformation in our thoughts. The title of my message this morning is Hole in the Head hole in the head. And I just want to tell you how proud I am of that title. I thought that all on my own. I love the pun, and I just wish someone would get excited about how brilliant that title is. Thank you. I was sitting at St. Peter's Village, the bakery there, working on my message, and that came to me, and I thought, that is brilliant. So that was my big thought of the week, and I hope the message is good. Um, So in preparation for my message this week, I talked to one of my friends. His name is Jim. He's a therapist. He has been a marriage and family therapist for uh, two-plus decades. And I asked Jim on the phone uh, early Wednesday morning. I said, Jim, I said, give me your best five minutes on how people can change the way that they think. And after I gave Jim $175, he told me this. He started to tell me the process of how our thoughts develop. First of all, we feel something, and then our feelings become thoughts, and then our thoughts turn into behaviors. For example, let's say something happens that makes you feel angry, like being cut off in traffic. Someone cuts you off and you feel anger or rage. You think that other person is a dummy and then you express that thought through words or possibly gestures if you're not that close with Jesus that morning. Or maybe here's another example. You're on Facebook and someone has posted yet another picture of their dinner. And you think, oh my goodness, I don't know why people do that. So you feel annoyed. And then you feel annoyed and then you think something about that person like, I wish they would stop being annoying. And then you say it out loud to your spouse, why do people post pictures on Facebook and then you sin because you're just a judgmental jerk? Okay, so we understand how feelings become thoughts that become actions. Here's the downside. The speed that feelings generate thoughts that become actions is incredibly fast. How many of us recently have thought about slowing down our thought process? Like that's not something we're actively thinking about when we're thinking. Like I need to slow down how I'm thinking. My friend made the point that most of us are inattentive to our feelings. We don't actually identify what we are feeling and why we are feeling it. Many of us can say like, oh, I just feel angry or I feel happy or I feel really down today. But we don't do the hard mental work of asking, why am I feeling the way that I'm feeling? What does that mean? It means that a lot of our thoughts and behaviors are simply reactions to how we feel instead of responses that are well thought out. But there is good news. It's possible to take control 
of our thinking. Just by way of illustration, I don't know if you know the name Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl wrote the book Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, Man's Search for Meaning. Viktor Frankl was an Austrian neurologist and psychiatrist, and Viktor Frankl also spent time as a prisoner in a concentration camp. He's a Holocaust survivor. And he makes this powerful observation about our ability to choose what we think. He says this, we who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. Isn't it incredible that you could be experiencing hell on earth and still choose an attitude of service. Let's bring this into our context as the people of God. The cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ gives me and gives you more choices when it comes to our thought lives. Jesus Christ on the cross not only paid for our sin, but in his resurrection, he defeated our sinful nature. And I know some of you may not know what that phrase means, sinful nature. Our sinful nature is the fatally flawed part of our hearts, minds, and emotions. It's what's broken inside every human being. It's that moment when you're watching the news and you think, how could someone be capable of doing that? And think to yourself, oh my goodness, people are broke. But then here's the thought we normally have, I'm not that broken. Yes, you are. Let me put it in these terms. If you're driving down 422, down where I live in Pottstown, there's that stretch of 422 where it's the 40 mile per hour construction zone. And sometimes I'm shocked how fast people go because no one is paying attention to that. It should say 40, ha, 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 just kidding, because everyone acts like that's the case. But here's the thing. Sometimes I'm driving 60 down that and someone will go by me going 90 and I think, what is wrong with that person? They're going so fast, they're going to cause an accident. Here's the reality. They might be a bigger lawbreaker than I am, but we're both lawbreakers. The person going 41 is a lawbreaker, and the person going 101 is a lawbreaker. And that's our sinful nature that Jesus defeated on the cross, like we're all broken, whether we're breaking the law by one mile per hour or 60 miles per hour. See, because through Jesus Christ, you're made new. We don't have to be slaves to our thoughts. Let me say that again. We don't have to be slaves to our thoughts. This morning, I want to give you a biblical pathway to being transformed in your thought life. This morning, I want to help you experience transformation in the way that you think. Paul says these words to the Philippian church in chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. Read it with me. I'll read it aloud. Just follow along. It'll be on the screen or in your copy of the scriptures, whether it's on an app or a paper Bible. They still make those. It says this, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. 
and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray together. Lord, we need you this morning. We love you this morning. We want to learn this morning. Lord, I pray that you would speak through me, and I pray our hearts would be open. Transform our thinking, Lord. I pray that we would be a thoughtful people. We wouldn't be people being swayed to and fro by every uh, moment of frustration or every feeling that we have, Lord. Feelings are from you for sure, but Lord, we're not a slave to our feelings, and we're not a slave to our thoughts. Lord, help us to be growing, maturing followers of Jesus, whether we came to Christ last week or three decades ago. Lord, do your work in our thoughts. Transform us today, not through the sermon, but by the power of your word and the working of your spirit in us. We need you, God. In your name I pray, amen, amen. So we, we look at this passage in Philippians, and it, you know it's tough when someone just reads a passage out of a letter, and they're like, okay, so you're going to talk about transforming our thoughts, and, and if you're like a biblically-minded person, you should be asking questions like, well, what was Paul even talking about here? Why would he say these things at the end of this letter to Philippians? So just to give you an idea of what the Philippian church was facing, listen to these words from chapter 1, and this kind of gives us an idea of the, the climate and the culture in Philippi when Paul wrote this letter to them. It says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So, what is Paul telling the Corinthian church, or excuse me, the Philippian church at the beginning of the letter? You're struggling, you're suffering. You're suffering like I'm suffering. So this is a suffering church. This is a church that was probably experiencing a lot of emotions, anxiety, worry, fear, and maybe even doubt. They were probably thinking all types of things like we do when we're in crisis. They probably have big questions for God. They're like, I'm following Jesus, and now I'm struggling and suffering. Some of you have asked those questions. Maybe you're asking that question today. And Paul closes the letter with several commands to help shape their thinking in response to their circumstances. So today we're going to talk about how to transform your thoughts based on this passage. Because the Philippian church, there was something about Paul's parting words to the Philippians where he needed to get across to them, this is how you should be thinking. How to transform your thoughts. The first thing Paul tells them is, Choose joy. Choose joy. Fourteen times in the book of Philippians, Paul tells the Philippian church to rejoice or to have joy, or he talks about how his joy is in them. And let me just ask you, let's just have an honest moment in church together this morning. How many of you have ever read the Bible and thought, this verse bothers me? Yep, how many of you thought that? This verse bothers me. Okay, you got to read the Bible to feel that way. But sometimes you're going to read the Bible. And you're going to feel that. And I felt that this week when I see rejoice in the Lord always. And then Paul says, I'll say it again, rejoice. Dude, do you know what my life is like? 
Do you know what I'm facing? Do you know what I'm going through? Do you know what I'm thinking about? Do you know what keeps me up at night? Rejoice in the Lord always. Could you come down to reality, Paul? Could you maybe enter into our pain and understand what we're going through? I don't understand how you could be so pie in the sky theologically and you could just say to the church, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Sure, easy for you to say until you consider that Paul was in prison when he wrote this. I'm generally a pretty upbeat person, but this idea of rejoicing in the Lord always Not sometimes, not when you're feeling good, not when you get a check in the mail, always. Just seems so unrealistic to me. Can I get an amen? Like unrealistic command in scripture, amen, that seems unrealistic. Maybe you guys are just better at joy than I am. If you walked in here this morning and there are some heavy things happening in your life, you might be thinking the same thing. And yet Paul says, rejoice. I think the reason this simple bottom line command may be tough is because we don't have a true understanding of what the word joy actually means. So this week in my study, I found a couple explanations of this word joy that were super helpful that I want to just share with you because sometimes when we think we hear the word rejoice in the Lord always, is Paul saying, plaster a smile on your face and act happy even though your life stinks. This is what one scholar says. Gerald Hawthorne, I don't know Gerald, but I'm sure he's nice, but he's smarter than I am, and he wrote the word biblical commentary, and he says this. He says, for Paul, joy is more than a mood or an emotion. Joy is an understanding of existence that encompasses both elation and depression, that can accept with creative submission events which bring delight or dismay, because joy allows one to see beyond any particular event to the sovereign Lord who stands above all events and ultimately has control over them. Pastor Tim Keller says this about the word joy in Greek. Uh, He says the Greek word for joy is a delight in God for the sheer beauty and worth of who he is. Its Its opposite is hopelessness and despair And its counterfeit is an elation that is based on experiencing blessing, not the blesser, causing mood swings based on circumstances. When we start to understand joy, we realize it's not plastering a smile on our faces. Let me just say this clearly. God's plan for dealing with negative thoughts that are caused by negative circumstances is not to pretend like they don't exist. That's ridiculous. To experience wholeness in your thought life, your thoughts must be deeply rooted in reality. However, we must be clear that we must acknowledge ultimate reality. What is ultimate reality for people who love and follow Jesus? Ultimate reality for a follower of Jesus is that we can experience authentic joy in God because we alone, out of all other religions, out of all other people in the world, we alone are uniquely capable to see beyond the temporary pain of the present. We can choose as an act of faith to delight in the sheer beauty of who God is. We're able to look at Jesus who died for us and remind our souls that we are deeply loved. 
We are able to stand on the promises of God that he will never leave us or forsake us, that he is working together all things for good for those who love him. We can choose to rejoice in the face of our circumstances only because we serve the one who gives us endless reasons to rejoice. Where does Paul say your joy is supposed to come from? The Lord. See, the key to understanding this text is not only knowing what joy actually means, saying, God, I rise above my circumstances. I don't pretend they're not real. Those are very real circumstances. But I'm not going to try to find joy in my circumstances because I don't know about you, but my circumstances change all the time. I talked to a young father from our church this week. His son's in the hospital. Woke up one morning last week. His name is Connor. You can pray for him. He woke up one morning last, uh, last week. Connor did. And his mother noticed that his head and his spine and his legs weren't working anymore. He's six months old. He could hold his head up. And Connor could no longer hold his head up anymore. And so Connor has been down at CHOP this week. Do you realize that for Devin and Eric, their circumstances changed in a moment is this message real for them today? Can we literally look Eric and Devin in the face and say, rejoice in the Lord always when their son is lying in a hospital bed? Like one day he was a healthy baby boy and the next day they're asking questions like, will he walk? Is Paul saying rejoice in the Lord always, Devin and Eric? Yeah, you know why? Because if your joy is in the Lord, your joy is in the one who never changes. Your joy is in the one who always, in every season and every morning, regardless of what you're walking through, is the same. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Christianity is not about burying your head in the sand and singing happy songs like, I'll fly away. Christianity is saying, these circumstances are difficult. My marriage is in a hard place. I'm not sure about my kids. We're running low on money. I'm concerned about my aging parents. I don't know if I'm going to find a job, but I know this. I can see beyond my circumstances, and I can say, Satan, you're not stealing this joy. Because my joy is not in the ever-shifting sands of the circumstances of my life. My joy is in the solid rock, Jesus Christ, the God of the universe. So how do you transform your thoughts? The first thing you do is, in every season, in every moment, by a volitional decision of your will, you choose joy. Let me just say this as a friend, and it's gonna sound a bit harsh, but I don't mean it to be harsh. You're not being authentic when you're negative, critical, and cynical. You're being willfully blind to the goodness, grace, love, mercy, and kindness of God. Some of us think that in the name of authenticity, we can act like Eeyore. That's not what the scriptures are calling you to. 
That's actually not authenticity. If you're a follower of Jesus, authenticity would be, God, I choose to believe who you say you are above the conditions of my life. Is your life defined by joy? Is it? Is your life defined by joy? I'm not asking you if you have a bubbly personality. Just so we're clear, some of us, we have amazingly kind and sparkling personalities. Okay, like, there's some of us, we're just around each other, and you're like, that person is always happy. Like, I just, I wonder if they've ever had a bad day or said an unkind thing about anyone. Like, Lord, sometimes I wake up in the morning, and I'm angry, and I can't be happy till I have coffee. And that person, every time I'm around them, they're just smiling and upbeat, and they're like, how you doing? It's so good to see you. And you're like, how could it be so good to see me all the time? Like, you're just too happy for me. Are those the only people who can get joy in the Lord? This isn't an issue of personality. Even if you're quiet and you're the most introverted person among us, joy is not a personality issue. It's a heart issue. And listen, you can't make yourself feel joy. So this is absolutely an issue of our thinking because we have to decide up here to choose joy. And here's what I found. When we make the decision up here to choose joy, it starts to take deep root in our heart. Here's the second thing we're supposed to do, how to transform our thoughts. First is choose joy. Second is pray about everything. Pray about everything. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. What does that word mean in the Greek? It means everything. By prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Now listen, some of you are upset because Paul just told us to rejoice, and now some of you are even more upset because Paul just told those of you who are anxious to stop being anxious. It's actually disobedient to be anxious. You're like, oh dear, you didn't, Joe. Well, I, I, you're right, I didn't. Paul did. Be not anxious for anything. Man, I, I've experienced anxiety before. I've had bouts with anxiety, and I still do from time to time. I still wrestle with anxiety. And listen, here's the thing about anxiety. When you're experiencing anxiety, you are feeling and thinking things that you are actually saying, I wish I didn't feel this way. Like anxiety is not like you wake up and you're like, oh, I think I'm going to be anxious today because I really want to wallow in the pit of despair. No one's doing that. When we're anxious, we're literally saying, I don't want to feel this way anymore. Don't be anxious about anything. The Greek word for anxiety means to be torn to pieces. To be torn to pieces. If you've walked through anxiety, you know that's exactly what it's like. You feel like you're torn up inside. Oswald Chambers really tries to comfort us by calling anxiety unconscious blasphemy. Thanks, Oswald. That really encouraged my soul this morning. Paul commands us not to be anxious, but he also gives us the pathway in the face of anxiety to experience God's peace. A key weapon to transform your thoughts is prayer. Paul uses four different terms for prayer in verse 6. He actually says four different ways we should be praying. He says, first, by prayer. What does that word prayer mean? This is just the broadest Greek word for communication with God. Then he says, by prayer and petition. This means to sincerely share personal needs and problems. This means with the Lord you get specific about what you need his help with. You like actually talk to him about why you're anxious. Then he says we're supposed to be thankful 
a heart of gratitude for all that God has done should fill our prayers. Now let me just say something about this word thanksgiving because I think that there's some bad teaching out there about prayer when it comes to being thankful. Some people believe that if you can just visualize what you want from God and you thank him for it before he does it, that means it's yours. That's not true. There's nowhere in the scriptures that would indicate that you could undercut the sovereignty of God by visualizing something and proclaiming, that's mine, God, and if I'm just thankful for it and I say, Lord, thank you that you're going to do it, that it's done. Hey, listen, there's people who've prayed that over people with cancer and they're still dead. And then we say things like, well, maybe that person who prayed didn't have the faith. Maybe they didn't thank God the right way. This word thanksgiving means that your attitude in prayer should always be, God, thank you for what you've done in the past. God, this morning I bring you my anxiety. You know I'm anxious about speaking this morning, God. God, I pray that I would experience your peace this morning. I pray that you would help my thoughts not to be about me, but it would be about the people that I'm ministering to this morning. God, thank you that Sunday after Sunday you do this in my life. God, I just welcome your peace into my life, God. Thank you for being good. This attitude of thanksgiving is what really defines our hearts as followers of Jesus, that we should be the most thankful people on the planet because of all that God has done for us, because he has never stopped being faithful. So in prayer, we are just thanking him constantly, trying to squeeze in our requests in between our thanksgiving. And then the last word, request, again is a word that speaks of specific petitions rather than vague and hazy generalities. So if we take a step back and think about what we're being told, we realize that our first response to worrisome, fearful, and anxious thoughts should be to immediately bring those in prayer to God. Because when we pray, we are bringing God into our anxiety. This sounds so simple, doesn't it? It sounds cliched. What should I do when I'm anxious? You should pray. And yet... You know it's a cliche, but think about when you're struggling with anxiety, are we doing this? We freak out and we tell everyone we're freaked out except God. We call our mama, we email a friend, we text our, we text our prayer partner and we're like, hey, you need to pray for me, I have a lot of anxiety today. And we're asking everyone else to pray for us, but we haven't prayed. We want everyone to know how in pain we are, but we haven't talked to God about it. Obvious, right? And yet, sometimes instead of it being our first reaction, it's our last reaction. No matter who you are, I want to just encourage you with this this morning. God wants to be invited in to your anxious thoughts. Why? Why does God want to be invited into your anxiety? Because he desires to give you peace. See, how God's peace comes into our life is through prayer. Paul says, not to be anxious about any, anything. And then he says, pray about anything. Pray about everything. And then he says, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, like you can't explain it, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What is God's peace? Peace is an inner confidence and rest in the wisdom and control of God rather than in your own. This peace shows up in a way that defies understanding when we pray about what we're anxious about. And when this peace comes, it guards your heart and your mind. Guard here, 
Circle this in your Bibles or highlight it. Guard here is a military word. It's used to describe an army that is surrounding a city to protect it. When people try to give advice about finding peace in your thoughts, they usually tell you to stop thinking certain things. Expel the negative thoughts and be positive. Think about bunnies and think about babies and think about a trip to Bermuda. But let me just say this. The peace of God is not so much about the absence of certain thoughts. It's about the presence of God himself. God's peace is not a psychological trick. It's a living power that comes into your life through the presence of God, the Holy Spirit. Both joy and peace are called the fruit or signs of the Spirit's activity in your life. So when we're trying to find God's peace, we're not saying stuff down the negative thoughts. Bring up the positive thoughts. Let me just be positive about everything that's negative. That's not how you transform in your thought life. That's how you get good at mental gymnastics. That might be a great leadership tip. Be positive all the time. But we don't want a great leadership tip. We want a living power in our lives. And that living power comes through the power of God himself granting you peace through his presence. So do you want God's peace? Do you want God's peace to act like a soldier around your heart and your mind? Pray. With an attitude of thanksgiving, ask God to give you what you need and leave everything in his hands. Prayer is the primary activity of dependent people. Prayerful people are peaceful people. Third thing, how to transform your thoughts. And the last thing, be intentional. Be intentional. I love what Paul says here. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, which is really a summary of those six words, and then he commands us to think. Think about such things. This word to think is a Greek verb, logizomai. It's where we get the mathematical term logarithm. This kind of thinking that Paul is calling us to do isn't simply a fleeting thought. It means to carefully and logically contemplate these virtues the same way you would solve a math problem. So let's just get real. Who's good at math? Okay, some of you. Who's not good at math? That's the best amen I ever got. Not good at math. Yeah, that's me, Joe. I don't understand a thing you're saying, but I know I'm not good at math. Listen, we all know that when we're doing math, thank God I didn't have to do a lot of math. I mean, I I failed math when I think I was a sophomore in high school and I had to go to summer school and it wasn't good. Um, And I I really don't even want to think about it. It brings back anxiety. So I'll pray about that after service. But I don't like math. But we do know that when we're doing math, what are we supposed to do? We have to focus. We have to focus on the facts. Math isn't about feelings. Math is about facts. And we need to think about it, and we need to be logical, and we need to be rational. Now listen, don't think I'm saying that the only part of our spiritual life is rational thinking. God absolutely touches our hearts and works in us through his spirit. But God is not saying when you become a Christian, stop being rational. That's a gift he's given us. And so Paul is saying, think about these things. 
actually take some time just like you were solving an equation with that kind of focus and that kind of mental energy, think about these things. This list that Paul gives us isn't complicated. What they mean in English gives you a good idea of what they mean in Greek. I don't need to pedantically go down everyone and define what they mean. You know, what's, you know what true is and you know what noble is. I think this list offers us an opportunity to ask ourselves this question. What are we intentionally thinking about? Are you thinking about what's true and right? Are you thinking about what's true and right? Are you making a conscious, conscious, willful effort to fill your thoughts with God's truth? Do you think about God's Word? Are you reading God's Word? Are you considering what it means for your life? Do you spend time thinking about the truth of Scripture, doctrine, we call it. Do you ever take time to dwell on your sinfulness? Jesus giving his life for your sin. The empty tomb. The salvation that you've been given. The grace of God. The hope of eternal life. See, some of you are like, yeah, that's why I come to church, so you can tell me about those things. Listen, if you want to experience stability in your thought life, Day in and day out, you need to be filling your mind with God's truth because God's truth brings stability. It helps you to know how God thinks about something. Proverbs 15, 14 says this, the discerning heart seeks knowledge, but the mouth of a fool feeds on folly. Feeding your soul the truth brings transformation to your thought life. Here's another question. Are you thinking about what's pure? What are you feeding your mind? What do you find yourself thinking about the most? What thoughts do you find yourself wrestling with? It's hard to have a pure thought life when you're feasting on trash. Some of us are nursing a porn habit, and that's wreaking havoc in our thought lives. We're either thinking about the shame and guilt associated with looking at pornography, we're thinking about the next time we get to look at pornography, or thinking about what we looked at the last time we looked at pornography. Hey, I promise that is not the way to transform your thoughts. Some of you are nursing bitterness and resentment, and you can only think about how hurt you are and how much you don't like the person who's hurt you. And you have this scene on Rewind that just goes over and over again about how someone has hurt you, and you play that over and over again, and God wants to say to you this morning, think about what's pure. Think about the grace that you've received. Think about the cross where God sent his son to die so that you could be forgiven. Think about how that motivates you to be a person of forgiveness. Some of you are nursing fear and self-doubt, and your thoughts are dominated by lies, deception, worry, and a lot of what-ifs. Some of you, all you think about is anxious, fearful thoughts. The point is this. You can choose what you think about, and even more than that, you've got to protect your mind. You have to make an intentional decision about what you're thinking about, because that is what determines what you want and what you desire, and your mind determines what you do when you react to the stimuli of life. Transformation of thought. Choose to rejoice. 
be intentional. Pray about everything. I'm thankful, though, that when God comes to us and he shares these commands to us through the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians, God is not saying, do this on your own. Transforming your thoughts is not something you do on your own. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 6. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. But letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. Friends, the Holy Spirit is the resource that we can lean on and invite into our thoughts so that our thinking is transformed. Joy, peace, intentionally thinking about what's true and right and lovely and pure and admirable and noble and excellent and praiseworthy, the Holy Spirit is your helper, is your assistant to transform your thoughts.